The text for Pastor John's message this morning is found in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, the second chapter, verses 1 to 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our visit to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the face of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from error or uncleanness, nor is it made with guile. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never used either words of flattery, as you know, or a cloak for greed, as God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse taking care of her children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember our labor and toil, brethren. We worked night and day that we might not burden any of you while we preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our behavior to you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Bethlehem Baptist Church exists by the grace of God and for the glory of God. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And therefore, the most accurate way of describing our commitment to the three priorities that we're talking about in these three weeks together would be as follows. Two of them are symbolized in these symbols on the banner. We exist first to reflect the grace of God back to Him in worship, to His glory. Second, we exist to apply the grace of God to one another in nurture and edification for our upbuilding in faith and love to the glory of God. And next week, thirdly, we exist to extend the grace of God in evangelism for the ingathering of God's elect from every people and tribe and tongue and nation to the glory of God. Now, today's focus is on priority number two, the nurturing of one another, the edification of each other, the horizontal work of the church. And it's massive. It's so big, the topic. We could preach for years on it without duplication. There's a lot in the Bible about this. So I don't presume in any way to be exhaustive today, but to pick one little dimension of it that the Lord laid on my heart months ago. I want us to think together about sharing our own souls. To that end, I direct your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 12. Now, 
This has been read. And I hope that you sense the strangeness of these words. These are the words of a defendant. Somebody who's on trial is in the dock. He has been slandered. He's got opponents in Thessalonica. Just walk with me through the text. Verse 3. Our appeal is not, it does not spring from error or uncleanness. It's not made with guile. Verse 4. God entrusted us with the gospel. We don't seek to please men. Verse 5. We never flattered. We never coveted anyone's money. Verse 6. We didn't seek any man's praise. Verse 9. We worked night and day so that we didn't burden anybody financially. Verse 10. God is my witness. You're my witness. How holy and righteous and blameless was our behavior. That's the way a defendant talks. And Luke told us that in uh, Thessalonica, right after Paul founded this church, the Jews were jealous and caused an uproar in the community. And so it doesn't take very much imagination at all to know what's going on behind these 12 verses. Slander, reproach, an effort to discredit Paul, but not just to discredit Paul. Who cares about Paul? But to discredit his message. These Jews who did not believe have to discredit the experience of the believing Thessalonians because if it's true what they've experienced, then they're indicted, the unbelievers. And so the best way they can think of to discredit the reality of their Christian experience is to say, this guy who brought you that message is a charlatan. He's greedy. He's covetous. He's out for praise. Paul gets the word down in Athens, 200 miles to the south from Timothy, that this is what's happening. And he writes this letter to vindicate partly himself, but as a, that only as a means to, to what's really important, namely, have they been chosen by Almighty God? Is their experience of God real? Look at chapter 1, verse 4. And here, I think, is the main goal and point of these first two chapters. He says, We know, brethren, beloved by God, that He has chosen you. Knowing that He has chosen you. That's the crucial question. Can the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica pull off through slander the goal of nullifying the conviction of the Thessalonians that they were chosen by God. They are among the elect. That's their goal. Paul's goal is the opposite, to establish them in their calling and election. And his argument is tailored to the situation. He wants to show himself and Timothy as utterly trustworthy. And he wants to show that they themselves have experienced such a change in their lives that nobody should be able to call it into question so quickly. So look at verses 5 and 6 and you'll see how he develops the argument. This is chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. We know that God has chosen you. Now here comes his basis for this knowledge. For 
Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then here come the two evidences. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Second, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord because you received the word in much affliction with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, what we were and what you became is good evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work calling you out of darkness into light, freeing you from the wrath to come, making you His own. Don't let the slander of these people three weeks later call into question what was so powerful at the beginning. Remember, he points them back to that initial time. I'm glad that Paul was forced into saying things by slanderers. I'm so glad he had enemies. Because he might not have said some things that he said here had he not been forced into it by his enemies. He wouldn't probably have said verses 7 and 8. These are the verses that I want us to focus on. We were gentle among you. Let me stop and just remind you what, what he's up to here. He said back there, remember what sort of people we became among you? In other words, that was evidence that we were not charlatans. Now, we should ask, what kind of person? And that's what these verses and, and all the other verses answer. What kind of person was he? Verse 7, we were gentle among you, like a nurse taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, I have two minor adjustments on the Revised Standard Version here. If you've got an NIV, you'll notice a much better word than the word, we were ready to share with you. Your Bible says we were delighted, and that's good. That's what that word means. It's an eagerness. Paul wasn't just ready to do it and didn't do it. He did it and was delighted to do it. That's the one. Here's the other one. The word selves, share our own selves, is literally souls. And I want to keep the word souls because it implies more intimacy than selves. This does in my ear. If it doesn't in yours, that's okay. Uh, and this is an intimate text. So here's the way I would paraphrase or translate the verse. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were delighted, we were eager to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. Now, here's the doctrine or the truth that I want to pull out of this text and then lay before you for your admonition and challenge and encouragement this morning. I put it like this. Wherever the gospel flourishes, people share their own souls. Wherever the gospel flourishes, people share their own souls. Now notice the way the gospel flourishes. We'll go back to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. Our gospel came to you 
not only, this is what I mean by flourish, not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, full conviction. You know what kind of people we proved to be among you. You know what kind of people you became in imitating us. Our gospel flourished at Thessalonica. It changed the messenger. It changed the hearer. And that was evidence that God is real among you. What kind of person did Paul become? He became a kind of person who shares his own soul. Where the gospel flourishes, people share their own soul. And so I want to ask three questions. One, what is it to share your own soul? What does that mean? And second, how is it that the gospel brings that about when it flourishes? And third, why is that important? Why is that more than icing on the cake? Question number one, what is it to share your own soul? Notice what it isn't in these verses. We were eager to share not only the gospel, but our own souls. So we can infer this. When you have shared with someone the most valuable information you have to share, you have not shared your own soul. Because the gospel is the most valuable thing anybody has to share. But Paul says, I want to share not only the gospel, but my soul with you. So it doesn't mean sharing the gospel or any other information. And secondly, it does not mean just working hard for someone. You see that in verse 9? starts with a 4. Looks like it's explaining or undergirding the statement that he shares his life. So somebody might say, you see, what it really means, John, is when you work hard for somebody, night and day, you've shared your soul with them. That's probably included here. That's not the essence of the meaning. I'm sure it's not. And the reason I'm sure is because the way Paul talks in this passage. Look at verse 17. Down further on in chapter 2. He says, But since we were bereft, that word means literally orphaned away. Orphaned. Since we were orphaned from you when we left, brethren, for a short time in person, oh, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Those are not the words of an employee. Those are the words of a soul Friend, aren't they? When he says, I shared with you my own soul, he did not merely mean I worked hard for you. He meant, I let you see, I let you see inside of me. My soul was laid out for you to look at. I did not conceal it. I did not hide from you. What is in me? When you share your own soul, you don't conceal the true feelings you have about things. A shared soul is a shared passion, a shared longing, a shared guilt, a shared fear, a shared joy. When you share your soul, it isn't just information. It isn't just working hard for somebody. It's what you are in your heart 
depth of feeling about all these things. Look at Paul sharing his soul. It's not easy to share your soul in a letter, but he does it. Verse 17, my great desire is to see you. Verse 20, you are my joy. Verse 5 of chapter 3, I carried a burden in Athens that was so heavy I couldn't stand it anymore. And I sent Timothy to find out how you were doing. I was so crushed. Verse 7 of chapter 3, you are my comfort. I've heard word. My, co- my heart is comforted about you because of the news I have. Verse 10, oh, how I long to see you face to face. Paul just lays his heart right out on the table for everybody to look at. His passions, his longings, his loves, his fears about what's going on in Thessalonica. And we ought to ask this morning, you ought to ask right now, have I written a letter like that to anybody recently? Or do I have someone I can talk to like that where I don't just share information, but I share my soul? Second question, how does the gospel cause that to happen? Because I've argued that where the gospel flourishes, people share their own souls. How does the gospel do it? I think there are two things, two indications in verses 7 and 8 of how it happens. First, when the gospel flourishes, it makes a person gentle. Verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nurse taking care of her children. The gospel imparts to those who believe it a nurturing spirit. Paul groped for pictures. He groped for an image. What what can I use to describe what the gospel did to me in Thessalonica? And he said, what the gospel did to me in Thessalonica was make me into a mother of children. What mother in the middle of the night, having gotten up to rock the baby, ever withheld anything from that baby? What mother has not unburdened her soul to the child at her breast? This is a remarkable image of a great theologian to say what the gospel did to me when it flourished in my heart in Thessalonica was to make me into a mother of children. True gospel gentleness begets holy intimacy. It inclines believers to share their own soul. Second, when the gospel flourishes, it gives a person a sweet affection and kindly feeling toward other believers. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, see that? Being affectionately desirous of you, and then at the end of the verse, you had become very loved, dear to us. We hear a lot today about love being a decision, an act. Love is an act, people say, not a feeling. The reason they say that is because they want us to love each other when we don't feel like it. If you're out of sorts with somebody, they don't want you to punch them. They want you to bless them, to to be nice to them, help them, even though you don't 
feel like it. And I say, amen, as far as it goes. But if you say that's the ideal, you don't know the gospel. That's not the ideal. When the gospel flourishes, Christians feel affection for one another. And you might say, wait a minute, you can't infer that from this text because Paul may have just been that sort of person. He was sort of a passionate guy, highs, lows, and he gets all worked up. He's an emotional type. Sure, Paul has affectionate desires for people, but I'm not that kind of person. And so don't lay that on me. I, I just do my duty. I work hard for people. You can't, you can't get out of it like that. And the reason you can't is because Paul and Peter not only do it, but command it to all believers. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. There are two Greek words. It's not even a sentence. It's just two Greek words. Philadelphia, which you all know, brotherly love. And Philostorge, which none of you knows, which means earnest affection. The kind of affection you have for old slippers or a sweater you've worn since you were 14 or a pet that's been around for 13 years and might have to be put to sleep soon. It, it, it just has to do with, with what you feel deep inside when, when you're warm towards somebody. He commands that. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.22, love one another earnestly from the heart. You see, it's not enough to say love is a deed, love is a decision. doesn't matter how you feel about somebody. Love them anyway. That's half the gospel. The bottom half. The top half is when the gospel flourishes, or you could say when the Holy Spirit reigns, you feel affectionate for your fellow believers. Something miraculous happens. Whether you're that kind of a person or not, it comes over you. Here's the best analogy I can think of. The gospel has an effect the way death has an effect. Those of you who have gotten sick enough to think you might be dying know what I mean when I say when the world starts to pass away what happens in relationships people become so precious so many grudges just dissolve as you lie there in the hospital bed you just lie there and you go through the people you know and the people you've sat with in worship the people you've argued with the people you've held grudges against and they're beautiful you want them. They're precious because you're about gone. Even the ornery ones, the unreliable ones, the homely ones, the callous ones, those abrasive oddities that made you so mad become sort of affectionate foibles, Little precious imperfections. That's just the way he is. He's so precious. I wish he were by my bed here. I would look him in the eye and we would talk of what we have in common, not about those things that made us so mad. Everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ has crucified the flesh. That means when the gospel flourishes, death flourishes. 
which means that Christians in fellowship with one another are living on the brink of eternity. And when we look into each other's eyes, we look with a kind of constant wistfulness because one or the other feels like it's happening. A long farewell or a spectacularly glorious reunion after a long... And, and, and so many things that make us angry with each other become so unimportant at the time of death. And the gospel is a time of death, praise God, and resurrection to new affection. Last question. Why is this important to share your own soul? So many reasons could be given. We could say the gospel humility of a shared soul is a great glory to God. We could say the gospel freedom of a shared soul deepens fellowship and makes worship absolutely incomparable. If you not only gather to focus on God, but know that your soul is beating with the soul of the person around you. I'm not going to talk about any of that. I want to focus on one thing. When you share your soul with somebody and they share their soul with you, there is a power for long, hard ventures in ministry. Most of the things in life that are valuable take a long time to accomplish. Missionaries who leave a deep impact upon a people stay a lifetime, not a summer. Pastors who build deep and powerful churches for the glory of God stay 20 years, not two years. Statesmen who want to revolutionize the customs and laws of a country, labor through 20 years of setbacks. And don't throw in the towel after the fifth year of setbacks. And I want to tell you a story. Most of it comes from Christianity Today. Many of you have read it about William Wilberforce. Born in 1759, 21 years old, elected to the House of Commons, a fairly rich and unbelieving sort until God got a hold of him, partly through John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He was from Yorkshire, was a big constituency. James Boswell, who wrote the biography, you remember, called him a shrimp. He was so little. In 1807... Two decades later, he was sitting in the House of Commons with his face in his hands, with tears streaming down his face, and the whole assembly was on their feet, applauding with a standing ovation the labor of William Wilberforce, the little shrimp who had endured not just five or ten or fifteen, but twenty years of setbacks in his battle against the slave trade in England. And he won in 1807. Where? Where did he get there? I mean, most of us know people who have been slighted and forgotten when we've had a little ministry to do in the church, and we say, well, if they don't appreciate me, then they can get somebody else to teach his class, or they can get somebody else to do this or that. 
one little setback. Where did he get that astonishing resilience and perseverance for year in and year out to introduce that bill and have it thrown back in his face by mighty economic interests? He got it partly from a community. His friend, Henry Thornton, got the idea in 1792, after they had been about this for about five years, that there should be a new community formed in the little village of Clapham, south of Parliament, and a gathering of people of like soul should live together and worship together and stay each other's hands in God. There was John Venn, the pastor, Zachary McCauley, the editor, Henry Thornton, the banker, James Stephen, the attorney, and William Wilberforce, the statesman, and many others in this community. They were devout Christians. Most of them were politically conservative and wealthy, but they used their wealth to solve human problems. In the spreading of the gospel, they pioneered in Christian philanthropy and created institutions for Christian missions and humanitarian services, and they were passionately committed to the abolition of slavery in England. How did Wilberforce hang tough for 20 years? He gathered around him a group of brothers, and he shared the passion of his soul. And they shared the passion of their soul. And they strengthened each other's hands for a decade until they won the victory. Where the gospel flourishes, people share their own soul. And one of the reasons why that's important is because, brothers and sisters, it's hard to hang in there for 20 years. Whatever it is. Marriage, Sunday school teaching, statesmanship, pastoring, attorney on behalf of the disadvantaged. You name it. Nothing is easy to hold to, for Christ's sake, for 20 years. We need camaraderie in the fight of faith. We need to share the passion of our souls. That's what the 2020 vision is about and that's what these next five minutes are about. Lord Jesus Christ, the two burdens I have for this service and its effect are one, that we would become an affectionate church. That we would not simply work for one another or make decisions for one another, but that there would be brotherly affection flowing in our hearts. It's a miracle, Lord. There are a lot of differences among us, a lot of irritations, but you can perform miracles, and I ask for that. And the second burden, Lord, is power for the accomplishment of great things for the cause of Jesus Christ in this city and in this world. I pray that you will raise up Wilberforces, Clapham communities that will stir one another up to love and good works and keep each other fighting the fight of faith against insurmountable odds, humanly speaking. 
To that end, we dedicate ourselves, Lord, as a church, to put ourselves into the kind of groupings, the 2020 vision, or if we're already in some other group, where we devote ourselves to cultivating gospel gentleness, gospel affection, gospel perseverance.